Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Taufik. I'm a social justice passionista and daughter of the civil rights movement. This podcast is my commitment to serve as an intergenerational bridge and galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity, the social construct of race, racism, and social justice. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. Hello, Roots of the Spirit community, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thank you to my loyal listeners and a very special welcome if this is your first time joining us. I created Roots of the Spirit in 2018 as my commitment to uproot racism through storytelling, education, and the arts. This podcast is a part of the storytelling aspect of the movement, but I also have many other offerings, such as a speaker's bureau featuring speakers whose messages align with my mission. I am the playwright of One Ninth, an exploration of human dignity and racial conflict as seen through the eyes of Minnie Jean Brown Tricky, one of the Little Rock Nine who desegregated Little Rock Central High School in 1957. Also, I host workshops and speak professionally in K-12 schools, colleges, universities, and other organizations bridging the past to the present, and inspiring people from all walks of life to learn their own roots in our interconnected history. For more information, go to my website at www.rootsofthespirit.com. I recently launched a pilot Roots of the Spirit book club, which you are cordially invited to take part in. The first book we'll be reading together and discussing is How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. My hope with this is to engage with you on a quest to elevate our collective consciousness about our shared history and work together to learn how to be an anti-racist. More information, head over to Roots of the Spirit Facebook page and send me a message. To help propel the movement forward, please tell your family and friends about the podcast. It would mean the world to me for you to like, share, rate, and review the podcast. I will post your gracious reviews and comments on my social media, and I appreciate you immensely. Now for today's remarkable podcast guest. Monica O. Montgomery is an arts and culture innovator using creativity and narrative as a means of bridging the gap between people and movements. She is the newly minted executive director and chief curator of the Prince George's African American Museum and Cultural Center, a home for black excellence. Monica advocates globally for social justice at the intersection of art, activism, and culture. As a curator, thought leader, and public speaker, she has curated exhibits on Black Lives Matter, African American resistance histories, climate change, social activism, freedom from slavery, feminism, and more. She holds a Bachelor of Arts in Broadcast Communication from Temple University and Masters of Arts in Corporate Communication from LaSalle University. She taught at Harvard University, Pratt Institute, and NYU. Monica holds leadership advisory positions in Of By Four All Change Network, leading change Changemakers and is co-founder and strategic director of Museum Hue, a multicultural organization advancing diversity, equity, accessibility, and inclusion initiatives, centering people of color in arts, culture, museums, and creative economy. Please welcome Monica O. Montgomery. Monica, welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. It's an absolute honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Spirit. I'm excited to be here and to vibe with you. As I've told you many times in person, and I'm saying again today, I'm in complete admiration of your powerful work and feel like you have created such an impactful movement and have so many tangible tools and resources that I know my listeners are so hungry for. So super duper excited. And we'll talk about like tangible things, how people can get involved with your movement toward the end of the show. But first, I like to inform listeners on how we became acquainted. From 2016 to 2019, I was working at the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian, and I was talking to one of my colleagues, Joy, who was in our education department, and I was just telling her about my background and the fact that I have such a deep passion to create programs and platforms to discuss historical and contemporary social justice issues. So I went to Joy, and at that time, I was somewhat new to the New York museum world, although I wasn't new to the museum world on a national scale, and I was telling her about my desire, and she told told me about your newly founded organization, Museum Hue, as you describe a multicultural platform advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives for people of color in arts, culture, museums, and creative economy that you founded with your co-founder, Stephanie Johnson Cunningham, in 2015. I throw that out there as a teaser. We'll totally come back to it. But when she told me about your organization, I was so intrigued because, as I've mentioned to you before, I worked in the National Park Service for many years, and I was immersed in the museum world 
world. And Museum Hue would have just been like a life changer. Before we dive into your incredibly remarkable career, I'd like to talk about your background. Can you tell me where you were born and raised and anything you'd like to share about your family roots? Sure thing. I am proud to say I was born and raised in the great nation state of Brooklyn, New York. (laughs) Yes, spread love is the Brooklyn way. So it's been really great growing up in the heart of New York City, a place that has a lot of diaspora vibes, a lot of art and culture and social justice and empowerment and Black pride and just amazing individuals and human beings as residents who are contributing to the richness that's there. So I grew up in Brooklyn in the 80s. Uh, It was an interesting time. This was before New York became quite so commercialized and commodified back when it was a little grittier. So that was quite an interesting transition to go from the New York that I knew and loved growing up to now with all the red hop-on-hop-off tour buses and the gentrification of everything, the Starbucksification of everything, (laughs) and just the ways that um, now New York is, uh, I will say, you know, really making itself tourist friendly, although I don't know if it's as resident friendly as it needs to be, but um, I had a great upbringing. Mother and father were both involved in my life. I'm an only child, so I was always kind of, I don't know, thoughtful, head in the clouds in a good way. I was very much like a lover of books, a lover of nature, kind of enjoyed other people and extremely extroverted when I was around other children. But when I wasn't, I could definitely entertain myself and have amazing inner worlds within my childhood, um, which was special and vibrant. I went to public school, Catholic school and private school throughout my life. And that was also an interesting way to segue through different educational experiences. A member of the Girl Scouts, member of a Baptist church that I grew up in for the majority of my life and just had a a real um, expansive upbringing. Had the good fortune to travel internationally once or twice when I was in private school because that's what they did there, but not in public school. (laughs) And I went to to public school up in Harlem. So kind of going between Brooklyn and Harlem, Manhattan and Brooklyn were my mainstays. Um, And I'm grateful for the upbringing I had and how it's really positioned me to be a global citizen and just an appreciator of culture and heritage. Wow, I'm, I'm really interested to hear your perspective on the difference between your different educational experiences. But before you describe that, I have air quotes up in the air that you can't see when I say the word race. When was the first time that you became aware of, quote, race? Hmm, interesting question. I don't mind these questions at all. I will say I'm an African-American woman. I identify as Black American, sometimes identifying as Black diasporan. My heritage is that my dad and that side of the family, paternal family, is from New Orleans. And so there's a special, I would say a special kind of Black folk (laughs) in New Orleans. And growing up there with the culture of Mardi Gras, you know, civil rights legacy, music, culture, great food. Um, There's definitely a jazz that's in the air, that's in the everyday lives of the people and jazz and the music. And so that was what I was immersed in as a child. And my mom's side of the family came from the Carolinas and migrated toward D.C. So Washington, D.C. also had a different sort of Black pride and empowerment, definitely a dignity, not as jazzy of a city, but equally meaningful in terms of its positionality in the national conversation, the landscape, my mom and her siblings went with my grandmom. She took them to the March on Washington and you know she got to witness the I Have a Dream speech. So all of that, I believe, funneled my parents to the kind of progressive pro-Black um, parents that they were, and they infused that into me. So very early, my mom, for all intents and purposes, for much of her career, she was a graphic designer. She worked at the New York Times. She designed textbooks. She did a lot of freelance work. She worked at Women's Day and some other magazines that closed. My dad, um, for a great period of time, was, a, I guess you could say, a management consultant, but he also did a lot of work with African-American books and ephemera. He appraised African-American estates. Um, I had the good fortune of working with him on the appraisal of Rosa Parks' estate. Wow. um, Carter Carter G. Woodson's estate. And so that's a lane that he's been in. And he's been one of the few um, Black men in that work. And certainly, hopefully, he's blazing a trail for more to follow. But he he also wrote a book, just tangentially getting back to your question. (laughs) No, this is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for the the time and the space to share. This is great. This honors them. I'm happy to share. He wrote a book called Collecting African-American History. 
it's now out of print, but I think you can find copies on Amazon. So his whole life, he has been collecting African-American history as a hobby and a, and a business and a passion and a, a calling for the culture. So he mostly collects books. Some of them are very rare books and manuscripts. On occasion, he's collected some art. And in that process of collecting books, art, as well as ephemera, anything that is paper, postcards, or anything like that, letters, he has learned the value and the importance of those items, as well as a broader spectrum of Black history and hidden histories that aren't told. So he then went from collector to emerging into appraiser. So he still collects, but he now appraises and assists other people with their collections, which is a great transition. All of this to say, when I was a youth <laughs> and a child, my parents would constantly teach me because both of them are educators in their own right. My mom um, segued into teaching and then became an art teacher and then she became an assistant principal. And my dad has often taught on the collegiate level. So they taught me the importance of Black history, Black culture, Black futures, and just how to be and feel and act empowered in my Blackness. So they would often give me uh, what they called Saturday homework. <laughs> so, you know, I had one set of work from school, and then my parents were coming with a whole different set of, like, flashcards and dates and um you know, information about different movements, trying to educate me about like culture, sport, and history, certainly about legacies of the transatlantic slave trade, Jim Crow, and how we overcame that. So I was always getting a full immersion in Black history and studies from my parents from a young age. And that, I didn't know it. I was resenting it at the time, like, who gets homework from their parents? But it shaped <laughs> me. <laughs> it shaped me. It gave me a great perspective. It gave me a grand worldview. It gave me a just a, a pride in my culture, in my family, in the ancestors for all they did and all they have contributed and all they are. And so I think that was keenly important in my formative years, combined with the fact that I grew up in an actually predominantly white neighborhood. I grew up in Brooklyn Heights. I was one of the only um, Black children in the condo co-op complex that I grew up in. So most of my friends were from different races. And I remember longing for a Black friend. I remember that intense craving feeling. I, I finally got one closer to when I was a teenager. But there was myself. I remember there was a young um, Latinx boy. Um, there was lots of white folks. I believe one Asian child. And we would all kind of, you know, play together and endure this overwhelmingly white space, white gaze, kind of disdainful looks from residents who at the time didn't even think children <laughs> should be playing in the complex, because again, it wasn't like we had a backyard. We're like, and it's, it's like a eight buildings with lots of parking in between and kind of like grassy knolls between that. But it wasn't like a designated play space for kids. So often security was like, hey, kids, shoot. Long story short, I remember first best friends, a set of twins, young white girls. And I remember enjoying playing with them so much and it was so great. And then one day, I don't remember how old we were. I'm going to say some, somewhere between maybe eight and 10, perhaps, might have been a little younger. I remember asking them, why are you a different color than me? And they had pretty progressive parents who also taught them respect, tolerance, and whatever other values. And I, I remember them saying, <laughs> I think they said something like, our mom said we shouldn't talk about race because it'll bring up hurt feelings. And I said, oh, it's like, why would there be hurt feelings? And they were just like, because of what my ancestors did to yours. Wow. Wow. And because I had the Black history learnings, and, and I was very kind of precocious and advanced for my age. I was like, that that's valid. Let's drop it. <laughs> so <laughs> so we dropped it. So I remember feeling just offended at the fact that we couldn't talk about their race versus my we couldn't talk about our differences because of the painful past. The painful past I had been taught, the painful past they had been taught, and that we were all innocent yet keenly aware that the world had a lot more in store and that the, the backstory would affect our friendship. And so that was probably the first moment beyond the Black history teachings of my parents that I was keenly aware of. How did you process that moment where the conversation came to a screeching halt? How did that impact your thought process about this subject? Hmm. At the time, I remember feeling frustrated. And while I kind of dropped it at the moment, like, oh, okay, your parents say we can't, and I guess we can't. I brought it up again a little later. I think we were like on our bikes. And I said, you know, it's not fair that we can't talk about this. And I just remember saying, like, we should be able to talk about anything. We're friends. So I think in my young mind at the time, I felt like 
okay, your parents said something. We have to respect that. That's a rule. But also I felt like as friends, they were holding back from me. And I remember they, uh, the two young white girls, got a little emotional. <laughs> and they were like, I don't want to talk about this, Monica. You're making us uncomfortable, blah, blah, blah. And so like they started crying a little bit. And I started crying like, this is ridiculous. Why are you crying? Like, I can cry too. <laughs> I think it kind of devolved into like tears and we all went back to our houses and the next weekend we went to play again. But I felt something, I felt a discomfort in that moment. And again, it felt more, it felt like it was beyond me, beyond them. It felt societal. It felt like the injustice of the world has come to intrude on our happy valley of playtime. And, um, and this shouldn't be. I remember telling my parents about it. And my dad, bless his heart, he is a scholar. He is a lover of Black culture and history. But I do think, unfortunately for him, he was and is very much about respectability politics. Mm-hmm. In that, and just a, my working definition is someone who doesn't want to rock the boat, someone who is very conscious of the feelings and the privilege of others and doesn't want to engage in tackling tough topics or conversations or actions that would be seemed as offensive or be presumed as radical. And so he's very much walking that line. He, you know, went to Harvard for undergrad, Columbia for his PhD. So he was a black person immersed in white spaces. And I'm sure there was all sorts of levels of institutional, interpersonal, systemic racism enacted on him and that impacted him. And so he was very much about like, don't be the angry black kid, woman, person. So he was kind of infusing me with that message simultaneously with the the pro-black. So it was like, hey, be proud of your people, be empowered. Also, don't go doing radical shit. No one will like you, <laughs> which is, a, again, a curious mix of messages. And so when I told him, like, hey, my little friend's, you know, crying. We couldn't talk about this. And I felt uncomfortable. And I cried and I came home and he was like, no, no. He's like, their parents are right. Don't go getting deep into that because your friendship will take a turn and you don't want to offend them. And you all are friends. You have a good thing going. He was also was and is very concerned about employability. I don't know, telling a hero. He's like, one day you're going to need them and they're going to go to great colleges and be able to get you a job. Like, oh, this ridiculous talk. So he kind of encouraged that. My mom was a little more with it. And so she just was like, don't worry. Everyone's different. Maybe you can try having the conversation again. But, um, but that was the advice I was given. And so, you know. I just find it really interesting because you said it and I was thinking the same thing just about like, I have this visual of you and your friends and how you describe everything unfolding and just thinking about like all of the societal pressures and racialized lives that we live, like coming to a head with these young girls and how unfortunate that we as a society at that moment in time and still today have not prepared young people to have conversations about things that impact their every single day lives and how that manifests itself. I just find that like such a beautiful and tragic story. Yeah. So much beauty in the innocence, but it's also so unfortunate that you had come to this point in life and, and you couldn't express yourself or you couldn't go further in the friendship with who you are. And with the interjection of the parents, that, also, you know, people are informed by their lived experience. And so the parents were trying to probably be good white allies saying like, oh, never talk about race because, you know, they have a claim to injustice that you, and you know, tell them to their kids, you all are too young to process, understand and apologize for. And so my parents trying to, you know, be the good black folks, their parents trying to be the good white folks. It all is just, it's just, I guess, beautifully human and tragic simultaneously. Ooh, that's very powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Can you talk to me about your very first visit to a museum and what that experience was like? Hmm. So it would have been before high school. Um, my mom, bless her heart, the art lover and art teacher in her used to take me again on my own visits um, to the museum, which is her and I. And sometimes when we would be in D.C., we'd go with my grandmother. I remember, I feel like I remember taking me many places, but the first place that I crystally remember the name of and the visitor experience of was when I was in D.C. for the summer with her and my grandmother, and we went to the National Air and Space Museum. And I loved it. I was blown away, number one, because it was more, you know, tactile and interesting and large objects more than like other art museums and and maybe other history museums I'd seen. I was so into it. (laughs) My mom had said to me, she was like, I'm going to go to the restroom and you stand right here outside the door and then I'll be back. And I think her and my grandmom went in and I said, okay. 
And then it was like, I saw something that just caught my eye. I think it was like some sort of impromptu puppet show or some, you know, telescope. There was something happening. And I saw other kids and I'm like, I was going to venture over here. I'll be back by the time she gets out the bathroom. And I totally like fell into like whatever that experience was and whatever, like, you know, gallery guide was delivering that. And then I saw some other shiny things and I'm like, just giving myself a tour, like feeling really good. And then I looked up, I realized, oh, I'm in a different part of the building (laughs) and I've lost my family. And this museum is great, but like my parents will be angry. My caregivers will be angry. And so I tried to wander back the way I thought was to the bathroom. Um, and luckily my mom and my grandma had been like scouting the premises. They were staying close because they guess they figured she's smart enough to find a way back. And so they found me. And so my mom was like, how could you do that? How can you walk away? And I'm like, I'm here to learn. And I saw some learning. <laughs> like, again, I was very <laughs> precocious, like very ahead of my age, time, whatever, grade, developmental level. So I was like, yeah, like, this isn't anything against you. Like, this is what I came to do. That's so cute. <laughs> she was like, what is going on with you? Like, what kind of child do I have? She was like, when we get home, I'm going to punish you because you wandered away and that, you know, violates our safety rules we have as a family and la, la, la. I'm like, okay, but aren't you proud? Because I learned this thing about playing. So I remember that keenly, very keenly. I remember the joy, the, the wonderment, the fear of when I got back there, what she would do. But also remembering, I really like these spaces and I want to come to museums as often as possible. That is so cool, especially considering the path that your career has taken. How cool. (laughs) I would love to talk about your high school experience, how it differed from middle school and where you went to school. Sure. Funny, I I didn't enjoy high school. And so my memories of it are dim. I feel like my life really started when I got to college. But um, I went to A. Philip Randolph Campus High School right across from City College up in Harlem. It is a public school. And so around the middle of my life, my teenage years, my parents got divorced and that uh, rocked my sense of self and my existence in many ways. And one of the ways was that when they were together, they would often be on one accord of what school I should go to. And as they were separating, there was a lot of discord around that, a lot of arguments. My dad wanted me to go exclusively to private schools because, again, he was very worried about the future, college, employability, being around and amongst white people that could potentially help my cause in the future because that was what he believed had value. My mom was more frugal, said she could have a good education everywhere. And my mom, being a public school teacher, wanted me to go to like top public schools. So I was in um, Brooklyn Friends, a, a Quaker friend school for a few years, loved that experience. Then I got thrust into a Catholic school for a year, hated that experience. And then I guess the medium was I got tossed into (laughs) A. Philip Randolph back to public school for high school for three years, 10th through 12th grade. I learned a lot more about like people, streetwise things. When I went there, there was a lot of um, gang activity happening at the time. I remember big, you know, feelings, scary incidences between the Bloods, the Crips and the Latin Kings. So that colored a lot of my reality. I remember, I always remember keenly feeling like I shouldn't be here and my parents could get along. For the sake of me, they would have known that. Being someone who's just always developmentally advanced, you're always having thoughts that don't quite fit your age group, your body or your, what people believe you should be capable of. Mm-hmm. So I remember like having intense philosophical debates with myself, like why couldn't they get along just a few more years until I went off to college? And then we could have had this beautiful Cosby life. At the time, Bill Cosby and his family was something to aspire to no longer. But it was like, why, you know, why did they have to do this? Like, they're ruining my future as well. So I was having like all of these like intense thoughts in myself. So every time like, you know, someone would be stabbed or something would happen in school. And my friends would be like, oh my gosh, you hear about the stabbing? Or like often they would beat up teachers, very often, scarily so now. So I'm like, wow, as an adult, I'm like, imagine a mob of teenagers descending on someone because they didn't get a good grade. But that was very frequent back then. <laughs> so wow. I remember they'd be like, yeah, such and such teacher got beat up. They're going to be in the hospital. So we have a free day. There's no substitute. And I was just like, Jesus. I was really, <laughs> really, <laughs> really, um, I don't know. It, it was it was unfortunate for me to be there. However, I will say there were some bright spots. Um, made a lot of interesting friends. Learned a lot about, I hate to say it or sound like this, but how the other half lived because I had had a pretty charmed middle class existence um, and had not been introduced to elements of socioeconomic under-resourcing, poverty, et cetera. Um, and so in this environment, I saw some of that and my classmates and in the surrounding neighborhood. On high notes, also, I got to take a lot of AP classes um, as well as some college classes at City College. So it was interesting. It was definitely a memory. <laughs> we just had our like 20th anniversary for high school. I'm like, oh my God. And everyone went and I didn't. I mean, God bless them, right? I, I like sent a donation for the scholarship fund. But um, yeah, 
that was high school. And then I went to college and life got better. What were your aspirations in terms of a career or were you decided at that point in time? Yeah, I had been thinking about careers since I was eight and my dad was forcing that <laughs> reality on me. What are you going to do when you grow up? So um, I was very career ready. I remember creating business cards in high school, giving them out to people and people would like laugh at me and throw them on the floor. But I was like, I'm just trying to network. Like again, I was <laughs> ahead of so my cute. time, out of my time. I don't, I don't even know what was happening, but yes, I was ready for a career. So I was very fascinated with um, language, writing, communication, the written word, the verbal word, and that whole study. At the time, we didn't have a quality college resource center. But my dad, being who he is and, you know, amazing scholar and all these things, he started taking me on college trips on his own, which I appreciate and to this day thank him for. And so while, you know, the College Resource Center was like, yeah, CUNY's down the block, look at them. My dad's like, actually, we're going out of state to see some places. So we were talking to uh, Syracuse, University of Buffalo. I applied for about eight schools. I got into all of them. Um, I think Northwestern. Uh, Dillard down in New Orleans, a bunch of them, Loyola in, in Baltimore. And at first I wanted to do English because I did always really great in English A's and A minuses and I liked speaking and reading. But my dad said, do you really want to study literature or do you want to study communication? And that was like a new word for me. I'm like, what do you mean communication? I'm, you know, I'm, all I would think was like telecommunications or phones. He's like, yeah, communication, the art of communicating and how that's done. And that can lead you into like advertising, marketing, and public relations. You could work in radio and TV. And I was sold. So thank God my dad opened up that realm to me. And that's when I realized I wanted to do that. I had wanted to be a lawyer for many moons. And I figured I'd do communications as undergrad and law uh, on the graduate level because I wanted to fight injustice. And I really liked to debate. I was on a debate team. I did fairly well with it. Um, but my aspirations to be a lawyer um, kind of faded away after I saw all that it took and how dehumanizing, you know, the, the bar exam and just having to cram so much information in your head. And so I kind of came out of that. But um, I, I went to school wanting to do, you know, radio and TV. Um, and so my major was broadcast communication. So I studied that. But then I really got interested in the wide world of, you know, communications to, you know, going from journalism to more so how to compel, how to persuade, how to string words together, call to action. So that's when I really switched my major to marketing and public relations and, and excelled there. Um, I had a great college experience. I was on the five-year plan. <laughs> so I graduated uh, a little past schedule, but it was all good. Um, and that formative experience really helped me um, just to kind of walk through the world the way that I do. I also have my master's in um, corporate and integrated marketing communications. And so even though I never went to school for any of the careers I had, museums or other ones, I feel intensely capable and ready for anything because I understand how to communicate um, and how to deliver a message. And that serves you well in, in any field. Absolutely. So I was fully aware of your background in terms of your career and museum, Hugh, and I felt like I had a great understanding, but I was so excited when I came across a TEDx talk of yours, how to be an upstander and learn that part of your journey to this moment began after being dubbed the social justice preschool teacher by Humans of New York and that story going viral. Can you talk about your experience? I think this story is so cool. Sure. Um, yes. Uh, when I lived in D.C. the first time, I was a teacher, charter school system, working in early childhood education, mainly dealing with pre-K three and um, four. I did a little kindergarten, but mostly pre-K three. And it was amazing and beautiful. And because I appreciate just the journey of humanity and developmental stages and learning so much and remembering my own developmental stages, I really tried to love up on the children and infuse a lot into them. I taught in a Reggio Emilia school, which is um a philosophy of using kind of nature, what's in the sound environment, um, and other things that are child-centered, project-based learning to teach. So not doing a lot of heavy, bright colors, buying things from teacher stores, but rather letting the children do project work and art and craft work that populates the walls, that teaches them, that they can look around the room, see things at their eye height, see their own work, and understand and learn from that. So it's a, you know, there's many philosophies of teaching that's one, but I enjoyed that space. Long story short, really liked teaching younger kids. Uh, they're literally new to the world and they're like sponges and you can create a culture of welcome, a culture of safety, a culture of innovation and, and understanding or otherwise. And so unfortunately, 
societal circumstances, once again, pushing in on the innocence of children, made me take a bold stand. At the time, this particular year I was teaching, that's when Trayvon Martin um, was ruthlessly murdered by the vigilante George Zimmerman. May he always be haunted <laughs> and, um, and, and pursued and brought to justice one day. And understandably, this was what some dubbed the beginning of the modern beginnings of the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, with the accompanying hashtag and um, direct actions, et cetera. And so when that happened, there was a lot of talk about it. It was in the news. It was kind of all over the pop culture psyche. And the students and parents were very kind of upset. Um, Students were very anxious. And students were kind of asking questions about what's happening because they were being shielded from it largely by their parents and caregivers. And they weren't able to get, I guess, straight answers, nor did they understand, many of them, the concept of racial profiling and extrajudicial violence, state sanctioned violence, all of that. And so kids were coming up to me asking crazy questions like, oh, my gosh, they, you know, they call me Miss Gummy. Miss Gummy, are we safe? Um, are we allowed to eat Skittles? Are the police going to hunt us down and kill us? Is wearing a hoodie make you a bad person? All these snatches of the story that got kind of tossed up in their minds, in their young minds, and they're trying to contextualize. And I was um, also equally bothered and haunted by the incident and by the reaction the kids were having. And I felt like with all this educational philosophy, it is our core duty to teach our kids and the youth around us about what's happening in the world and to prepare them for the world, the realities of the world. So I would talk to some of my other teachers and administrators like, hey, my kids are asking questions, things are happening, what should I do? They were like, oh, don't worry, just tell them to go run and play. They can't understand, it's too much for them. Don't sweat it. But I didn't feel comfortable with that answer. And so I created a curriculum or rather a lesson plan, a unit plan that spanned for several weeks around community care and Black Lives Matter, trying to teach them the concept of the value of Black and Brown lives. My kids were mostly all of them, um, African-American, African continental and Latinx kids. And just trying to teach them about safety, uh, about strength in numbers, about unity, about justice, about how we can care for one another, how they can be safe um, as they can possibly be in instances where they have to interact with law enforcement and how we need to do you know, service learning to kind of pull it all together. So we did a lot and we did community cleanups and we wrote letters to Trayvon Martin's mom and sent it to her foundation. We talked about things. We used, you know, things like M&Ms and other little um colorful objects to illustrate how some people are often um, prejudiced against people because of the color of their skin and how that's not right. That's not the way to be. So we did our best to work through it. And over that time, it was good because the kids started to just feel a little better, less anxious. Um, And then we got through it. And at the end of the school year, I was feeling good. Kids and parents were feeling good. And um, my principal called me in the office. And basically, I thought I was coming to sign a contract, but she said, "Um, I don't know what you thought was happening or what you thought you were doing, but I didn't hire you to be an activist. And the administration is whispering about you. They're not happy with all this stuff you're teaching the kids. This is not what we wanted you to do. And you are fired. And that was a devastating day, getting fired for teaching what I thought was social justice in context with their age and their level. And that helped them move through a a difficult time. But that was not um, the agenda of the administration. And they were very Um, hostile to me, and I had to leave that school. And I was devastated because I felt like, wow, if this isn't what you can do in school, like, where can we do this? Where can we talk about social justice? Where can we teach kids the truth? This is ridiculous. And I had really heavily identified at that time my identity as a teacher because I'm from a family of teachers. I thought I'd do teaching and be a teacher forever, but I wasn't. So I had to regroup. I had to rethink. I had to move away. How did that make you feel, being fired for doing what you knew in your heart was right and what was actually helping the young people? What did that moment mean to you? Yeah, that moment was a turning point in how I identified and taking a stand. I felt extreme disappointment. I felt rage. I felt righteous indignation. I was furious with all involved. I was angry that I ever got myself so deeply I guess I felt I felt betrayed and tricked that the promise of modern education was a place that I could be myself, that all these progressive values that many of these charter schools are spouting, that they weren't living up to them and that it was all a farce. Um, and I realized I needed um, a new career because I couldn't, I, my heart couldn't bear going back to teaching if this is what it meant. So what then changed? My desire changed. I went from just wanting a stable job to wanting to be in a space that had meaning, um, 
to be in an arena where I could pursue my values of social justice. I could be myself. I could contextualize what's happening in the world and do that for a living. And then I realized I needed to do that and I needed to find that space. And I realized maybe that space doesn't exist, but I'm going to create it. How did you end up creating that? To make a long story short, I realized that I would like to fuse my love of museums with my love of social justice to create um, what I consider the first mobile social justice museum, a place where people could contextualize and feel their feelings and understand and take action, right? So yeah, let's grieve, let's cry, let's talk, let's have the conversation, and then let's act and let's be moved to action. And so I founded the Museum of Impact back in the day. (laughs) It's not that far along. But it was interesting because I didn't have any experience working in museums. I had, you know, very new experience pursuing social justice themes, but I decided instead of going back to school and getting a degree, which is often the (laughs) conventional wisdom, I was going to learn by doing, going to learn by volunteering, apprenticing, studying, part-time working, doing anything I could to get deeper in the world of museums so that I may understand and infiltrate so that then I can recreate them in an image of justice, um, and equity that I believed needed to happen. And at first I thought there might be a museum like this. The closest I came was finding many Holocaust and civil rights spaces. And while those are valid and good, I wasn't trying to focus on a specific period of time. And I really wanted to focus on what was contemporary. And I didn't see any contemporary action at the time where museums were responding, reacting, relating, and curating around social justice. So I said, that's what I'm going to do. So I had a lot of BS jobs. I volunteered in many places. Many of the people that are now clients and friends wouldn't give me the time of day initially. And when I say people, I mean museum people, because I didn't have a museum degree. I'm coming from a different background. You'd think that someone with a bachelor's and master's and classroom education experience with an eye towards marketing and events would be of value in a museum space, but mm-hmm. I was often undervalued, told that I wasn't a good fit, outright told on interviews. I wouldn't, I would say, a children's museum which shall remain nameless. I interviewed there and uh, the interviewer said, I don't trust classroom educators and I don't think you belong in museums. You should go back to the classroom. Wow. Was, yeah, that person in that institution are now museum human members. Hello. So it's interesting. <laughs> all of the... Uh, <laughs> All the strife, all the the kind of coming up the rough side of the mountain, it forged me in the fire, but it made me the person I am. It made me not seek outside validation, but rather be guided by spirit, right? Your name and be guided by truth and be guided by what I believe to be right in concert with what communities have stated they need, not coming from a savior complex, but coming from a true place of wanting to give and give back and, and be in concert with the needs of community. So I learned all I could about the museum world. I had all the part-time per diem, volunteership, apprenticeship, underpaid, under-resourced jobs in the world. Um, in that same span of time is when I formed and created Museum Hue in, in concert with my partner, Stephanie, and we kind of came to that. So many of the things I did in museums that were, I guess, now considered radical, groundbreaking, revolutionary, what have you, all were happening at the same time because when you don't have resources, you become resourceful. And I knew, A, I never wanted to go through a space again where there wasn't a community that could embrace me and I didn't see it. So I'm like, I'm going to create it. I'm going to talk to every person of color I know and every person who's progressive I know. And let's see if we could just get together a Panera Bread on the weekend. No endorsement for Panera Bread. But I mean, we were just like <laughs> going to places and meeting and gathering. And then our kind of numbers grew. And then we said, well, let's go to the places we work for and say, hey, give us space, give us time, give us ability to gather here. And that's what started happening. And it evolved and evolved. So Museum of Impact is my baby. That is the Smogel Social Justice Museum where we do pop-up exhibits around art activism, self, and society. We've done exhibits around Black Lives Matter, feminism, climate change, um, the school to prison pipeline, any number of social issues and current event challenges. And we've done custom exhibits of contemporary art by very socially engaged artists, as well as facilitated town halls and dialogues. And then Museum Hue is what I've done in community with others building a space, a brave, safe space, a place we can be, that we can be centered, that people of color and difference are setting the tone and setting the trend and making sure that our needs are getting met. And both of those movements have also just built me up in a way that we had to just start and do it and not wait for the right moment, not wait for resources, not wait for approval. And it's given me this amazing sense of self and the way that I walk through the world is different because I've been able to launch these organizations. Wow, that's so cool. Can you describe the mission of Museum Hue? Museum Hue is evolving 
I'll say that. And um, the way that I conceive of it, um, we are advancing the visibility and viability of people of color in arts, culture, museums, creative economy. We um, have done much organizing work around three large buckets, community, culture, and careers. We're very big on the career part, meaning we try to be a resource of HR space, a, a place for job finding, job coaching, job training, helping people get their foot in the door and advance in museum and arts and culture careers. So we have a jobs board on Facebook and LinkedIn, but there's also the private groups. Um, we have a website that also features jobs that is updated regularly. And we, we kind of vacillated between being a space for finding and learning about careers, a space for really being in community with others. Many people who are folks of color who have felt isolated in their workplace have been able to learn of our existence to connect virtually and in person when we do events. So there's been that kind of the community angle is being a place for togetherness, for unity, for sharing, for skill building, for venting. And then the culture. We, at one time in our existence, were often doing field trips for everyday people, for folks that worked in museums and those that didn't, giving people access to world-class museum spaces and cultural spaces for free. So if it's a place that was a paid space, we would broker and get free tickets. If it was a free space, we would work with them and find ways that we can bring people out. And we were actively kind of being tour guides in a way for folks to feel welcome in the space and take a trip with like-minded folks and enjoy culture. While that hasn't happened as much recently, I think overall in our years of existence, we are trying to rededicate ourselves to really diversity, equity, inclusion, and action. And what is it like to really operationalize that centered from people of color, women of color, folks of color um, who are doing this work. We've provided um, a lot of signal boosting for other aligned organizations progressive movements, for museum folks who are looking to unionize, for museum folks who are having issues. On the back end, we've, you know, written letters to elected officials. We've participated in cultural planning and policy work. We've, we've done all these things, and I don't know what it's necessarily culminating in, rather than just being a progressive force for change, but I do think there's been lives that have been impacted, and it's been joy in the journey. Well, I can speak personally. You're literally changing the narrative. You're creating a space for young people to be able to feel like they belong in museum in the museum world. And I say that because it's so there's so many different layers and dynamics to it, but as I was saying as we were chatting offline as somebody who worked in the museum world coming up in the 2000s, I did not see myself reflected and I could have only dreamed that Museum Hugh was around to support me and help guide me. I did have amazing mentors, but oftentimes these spaces were predominantly white spaces. And I just want to say how important your work is. You are changing the narrative. You're changing the landscape. You're changing the trajectory of young people's careers and their livelihoods. I'm just saying how important this conversation and your work is. And it really is a movement. And I just want to say thank you for that. And now you're the executive. Thank you. <laughs> no, I'm, I am so serious about how groundbreaking your work is. It is really, really important. And I just want to let you know. So now you're the executive director of Prince George's African American Museum, which is absolutely amazing. Yes. How is that going? It's great. It's great. Every day I am equal parts exhilarated and exhausted, but encouraged. <laughs> um, I will say everything in my life that I've done, all the phases, all the jobs, all the ideologies, philosophies, speaking at conferences, encouraging people, has prepared me for these moments. And I'm glad. I'm glad I've had this unconventional journey because I have a hustle to me that is unseen and unanticipated in the executive director space. And so I'm really happy that I've run startups, I've launched my own organizations, I've done these things so that I can take this organization, which has done amazing work and set a great foundation and boldly move forward into the bright utopian Black Museum future. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really into it, right? Like I find myself just, it's more than a nine to five. It's more than a check. Some people are like, oh, you're an executive director. You made it. I'm like, oh no, the journey is just beginning. I'm back to a place of learning now. I really, um, I've, I've been blessed that a lot of people invite me to, to speak and to conference and I do some of that. But now I'm in a place where I feel like I'm kind of starting at square one. And I'm really wanting to relearn, be in spaces of learning and immersion and listening as much as possible to prepare me for this journey, to inform my thoughts. Because I see being a director as really being a steward. The organization is not mine. I don't own it. 
but I am really trying to steward the organization through its assets, its resources, its curriculum, and its aims, mission, and vision to, again, the beautiful Black Museum future so that it is sustainable, so that it is responsive and socially responsive, and so that we can all join in in being invested and involved in the space. And so I um, was bought in because they, for lack of a better term, they noticed my flavor, they saw my style, they're like, oh, you're doing all this stuff in the world. We need that here. And I'm like, y'all sure? Because you know what I bring. You know I'm radical as hell. Like, yes, come with it. So I was really um, glad to be brought in to lead the organization. And being the executive director and chief curator means that I'm, you know, curating up a storm, you know, art and history and culture and sculptures and organizationally um, forging a new plan. I'm in the process of writing a strategic plan. We just entered into our 10th anniversary. And so we're doing um, some heavy fundraising and friend raising, trying to reimagine um, the organization and how to sustain it. And the way that I see it, Prince George's County being such a place um, that is upwardly mobile, that is dedicated to achievement and is a real county of firsts. Many Black firsts have happened here. Um, I want to highlight all of that. I am fond of telling my staff, stakeholders, and other people that visit that while we do acknowledge um, the horrors of the transatlantic slave trade, that is not the only story you will see. And we're not going to focus on slavery and sorrow, but rather on joy, resilience, overcoming, and empowerment. So those are the kinds of stories we're telling curatorially. That's the kinds of tours you'll get when you visit. We want to make sure that people leave in a space of empowerment and knowing the horrors, right? But knowing the highs and the lows and making sure that all of the fullness of that is told. And it's it's just been exciting rooting in a different community. I'm coming from the New York arts world, which has a certain pace, a certain verve, but I've enjoyed getting to know people locally. I'm getting to know local politicians and community leaders and the stories of the many different cities within Prince George's County and just how I can honor those visions, honor those stories, expand that narrative and do this work. So I've, I've, I would say having worked part-time, full-time, consulting for myself, all the things, this is the hardest I've ever worked in my life. I am intentional in wanting to work hard. I have a grand, bold dream. I want this to be the Studio Museum in Harlem of Prince George's County. And I'm on the path and we're on the path with the team to manifest it. That's fantastic. I'm so happy for you. And I just love your philosophy, your community and staff and the larger community and movement are so lucky to have you in this position. And when I go on your website, I'm like, that looks like the f- most fun, live, like real. Yes. Like it, it exu- it, the, it's exuberant. And you can read that just from going on the website. And I know that has to do with your leadership. How Thank cool you. is that? I love your, as you describe it, non-traditional path. And I hope that young people listening can think in these, in these terms, because when I worked for the National Park Service, I had to really be deliberate about promoting the fact that you don't have to go to school for history. You don't necessarily have to be an ecologist or a biologist. Like the entire world exists within these institutions. We need every type of background and expertise. And I I just feel like you are really, truly living and walking that. There's a quote you said in your TEDx talk, you attributed it to the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture. When we stand rooted in the power of our culture, in our stories and our songs, we can arise together against hate and injustice. That gave me chills all up and down when you said that. And I want to end with that. What does that quote mean in the work that you're doing today? Yeah, I feel like that quote just is just in hearing it again is about authenticity. It's about being and walking and standing in the fullness of yourself. Hate and injustice takes many forms. And as we see now, um, enemies of progress, white supremacists and others who are adjacent to those aims and agendas are many, are sneaky, are crafty, are trying many things, are doing many deviations and distractions. And so we have to stay vigilant. But I think also there is something to just being ourselves and being unapologetic, to use a a cultural fancy phrase that people like to say now, being unapologetic in whatever it is you're about and you you stand for, you know, our stories and our songs, right? Not everyone has the same story. We are not a monolith, not as in our gender, not in our race or ethnicity, our cultural background, our spiritual practice, our food ways, our beliefs. We are diverse and there's beauty. And we have to use that diversity as a source of strength to fuel the future that we want to see. And so I think in hearing this quote again, it's about resilience, it's about authenticity, it's about unapologeticness, and it's about how we're going to overcome 
all of it and it's going to happen together and it's going to happen organically and there's no one silver bullet method but being true to yourself is at the heart of it you're absolutely remarkable can you please give our listeners a snapshot of how they can catch up with you on social media website Sure thing. And thank you for the goodwill. I have the same goodwill and admiration for you as well, Spirit. So thank, thank you for this um, this time of sharing this platform. So let's see. I, I feel like the simplest way <laughs> to find me online with my many um, organizations and affiliations would be LinkedIn because that's, you know, a lot of centralized energy there. So um, linkedin.com slash Monica Montgomery. Facebook, I'm pretty active. Monica Montgomery Miati, my last name, N-Y-A-T-H-I. I have a lovely South African husband who has gifted me with a new name. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that love is fueling me in, in innumerable ways as well. So, so LinkedIn, right? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Monica Muses. Yeah, I'm, I'm out here. I'm in these streets. I'm, you know, in the area. I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to do it for the culture. I'm trying to do it for the future, do things for myself and to honor the ancestors. I really, really want the ancestors to be proud of me. And I really want my Wikipedia entry. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so a lot of what I do is like legacy focus. And someone was like, you could do Wikipedia right now. I'm like, no, but I want like someone else to write it, not me. So Hello. when I just... <laughs> I, I still do a lot of curatorial consulting and guest curating. There's a space that opened up in New Jersey called the T. Thomas Fortune Cultural Center. And T. Thomas Fortune is someone whose name has been lost to the sands of time. Um, he was considered the godfather of the black press. Um, and he gave people like W.E.B. Du Bois, Ida B. Wells, and others their first chance in journalism. He curated for the, um, excuse me, the Negro World, Marcus Garvey's publication, and was a contemporary of Booker T. Washington, many things he did. But he is someone who, as I've been researching, because I do history and contemporary art exhibits, his name has been lost to the sands of time. So when they brought me on, they said, do you know who this is? I said, no. He's like, well, do you know one of these quotes? And his quote was that progress is made forward ever, backward never. And that's one of my personal like mantra quotes. That's also a quote that we recited in our wedding when I got married to my husband in a Zulu wedding in Johannesburg. And it's a quote I've used when I've curated a places like Weeksville and other places. So unknowingly, I've been using this quote, wrongly attributing it um, my whole life. And I was recently educated. This was his quote. And when I reflect on him as a person and others who have been lost to the sands of time, I'm really, really focused and dedicated that I don't want that to keep happening. I believe we need more black and brown and diverse curators and artists and interpreters and administrators and every kind of person that can do art, culture, and history and the work of ideas, the work of humanities, so that we don't have any more hidden histories lost to the sands of time, so that we, as Viola Davis says, exhume those stories and make sure that the fullness of our human experience now and what was is being told. And if I can leave us on a, a high note, I really think that everybody could and should be engaged in the work of history keeping, arts appreciation, and cultural enrichment, and that it's not just for museum people or these people or whoever got this degree or who went to this Ivy League school. It is our birthright. Art and culture is our birthright. I say that to my staff, every staff meeting. And when we walk through the world with that, we know that this work and other types of work is valid, is necessary, is good, and that we have to be involved. That's what I'm about. Monica, Monica, Monica. Thank you so much. You're so kind. And everyone, please go to a museum today. If you can, go to a cultural space that honors your lived experience and your background. And please come to Prince George's African American Museum and Cultural Center because we are a home for Black excellence and everyone can get behind that. Thank you so much. 